Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bible Breakdown Special Advent Edition. Over the last two years, I think I started at the end of 2020, so it's been two, or this is the third Christmas, so we've been, have not done any Advent Bible Breakdowns before, so this is new, it seems obvious, and yet... Here we are doing it for the first time. So I'm excited to do it. Welcome to the very first Advent lesson on the Bible Breakdown. We will have another lesson, uh, Advent lesson next week as well. And then uh, the following week we'll have, you could call it a Christmas lesson. You could call it an Advent lesson. It's going to be well before Christmas. But uh, at the church, that's what's going to be our Christmas lesson. So just so you know, we'll have some more Christmassy content. This After this week, we'll have two more. Uh, and then the one in two weeks will be the f- last official Bible breakdown until the new year. So uh, it's been a it's been a great year. It's been a fun year. We'll be we'll be going again next year. Um, I if you, any of you are Spotify users, you probably got your uh, Spotify wrapped uh, this week, like I did. And they also do one for podcasters. And so I'll just give you a couple of fun uh, tidbits. One. You ready for this? Top five countries that listen to the Bible breakdown this year. Okay. First, US. That's pretty easy. Second, Australia. Thank you, Australians, for accidentally clicking on my podcast, just so everybody's clear. If you're a regular listener to the Bible breakdown, these people from these other countries are probably clicking on it by accident. And so this is more of a tracker of which countries accidentally click on this podcast the most is probably the more accurate way to view it. Anyway, number two, Australia. Third, the UK. So sticking with the English speakers, number four is going to blow your mind, okay? The United Arab Emirates, specifically in Dubai, is the fourth most accidental clicks on the Bible breakdown this year. So that's fun. And then Canada, again, fairly predictable on that one. The UAE, though, really showing up strong. So if you are purposefully in the UAE and listening to this podcast, well, welcome. We're glad to have you. I don't really think that's the case, though. Um, and then, oh, also, you listen, if you listen to every Bible breakdown this year, you listen to a thousand minutes of me talking, which that's really more about you than it is about me. Congratulations. I'm impressed. And uh, we also tripled, tripled the amount of hours that the Bible breakdown was listened to by listeners this year from last year, which is pretty cool. All right, enough nonsense about the Bible breakdown. I say all that just to say, A, it's kind of fun. And uh, B, thanks for being a loyal listener, if that is you, or even if you're an occasional listener, I appreciate it. Like I always say, I enjoy doing this a lot, and I hope that it is profitable to you. Speaking of profitable, we should talk about the Bible, because I know for sure that is profitable. So, like I said, uh, this is our first Advent lesson. The first lesson, we're going to be talking about some prophecies about Jesus from the Old Testament. Okay, this is coming from a a past gospel project lesson. Um, We are going to be looking at a couple of chapters of Isaiah. We are actually going to be saving Isaiah 7, which is the Emmanuel prophecy uh, for two weeks from now. That'll kind of be our capper for the year. Um, We're going to look at a couple different ones in Isaiah in chapter 9 and chapter 11. Then we're going to look at Micah 5 as well. And so we're going to see what some of those things had to say, uh, what some of those chapters had to say about Jesus, and then how we as uh, New Testament believers with the whole of Scripture get to see how Jesus fulfilled some of those prophecies and what that means. So let's go ahead and start over in Isaiah 9, and we are going to start there in verse 1. 
Verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9 says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, so very first verse, we see just kind of this intro. It's kind of a little bit of a uh, a transition. It's a change that is being foretold by the prophet Isaiah specifically focused on the area of Galilee. Okay, so when it refers to this area previously being brought into contempt, one reason this may be is because it was often one of the first areas invaded by foreign powers. So that's uh, according to Dr. Gary V. Smith. He had to add the middle initial because there's a bunch of Gary Smiths running around uh, in the commentary he has here on the first uh, half of Isaiah. And that's one reason they might have been considered brought into contempt. Uh, in fact, uh, the end of that verse, Galilee of the Nations, is often also interpreted Galilee of the Gentiles. Sometimes that's what Galilee was called because it had had so much foreign influence. A lot of uh, Gentiles or non-Jews lived in that area. So uh, if you would have been a person in Israel at that time, you would have considered those people contemptible. Okay, Jews and Gentiles uh, did not get along terribly well, and that will be true even past the time of Jesus. Uh, so if you believe those people are contemptible, then it makes sense, so, sense that you believe the land where a lot of them live would also be contemptible, right? So basically, this is kind of this uh, prophecy is saying this area that maybe isn't our favorite in all of Israel. Well, actually, in a later time, it's going to be made glorious, Okay, moving into verse two here in chapter nine. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So the prophecy is promising that though there has been darkness, a light is going to shine and that there will be much rejoicing. Okay, so that is the promise. And before we get too much farther, I'm not actually sure I included this in the notes somewhere. Uh, something that we know, again, as New Testament believers, is that uh, Galilee was one of the areas that Jesus did uh, most of his ministry, where his hometown was. So his hometown, of course, um, well, and I say, of course, his hometown, we refer to as Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, right? Even though he was born in Bethlehem, because if you recall, they were there on a special trip to Bethlehem to uh, give a kind of a census for tax purposes. And so Bethlehem is not really where Jesus grew up. It was in Nazareth, which would have been in the area of Galilee. And that's a lot of the area where he did his ministry. Okay, so keeping that in mind as we talk about it. Now, this idea of uh, light entering into the darkness, we do see... Uh, in a lot of scripture, there are these kind of light-dark motifs that show up, especially in the New Testament in uh, John's writings. John is one of the ones who will pick up this light-dark motif uh, the most. And actually in John chapter 1, this is how, uh, starting in verse 4, this is how John is going to describe Jesus' entry into the world. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So not uh, I'm not making the claim that this is a direct reference to Isaiah, but it's certainly relevant. It is certainly true that this uh, great light referred to in Isaiah is Jesus and that this great light that John is referring to is Jesus. 
So we see that kind of uh, common theme woven uh, between two books that were written um, several hundred years apart. And this prophecy that is fulfilled several years, hundred years after. Uh, so as we move farther then into chapter 9 of Isaiah, starting in verse 4, it says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we uh, see there this, uh, there's a couple things. There's a, a couple of reasons that there is going to be joy, that there's going to be rejoicing. To start off, um, oppression is going to be broken. Okay, so the yoke of this burden, the staff of his press, the rod of his presser, you have broken. Okay, verse five, that uh, basically what it's saying there is war gear. Um, the boots specifically in the garment, um, they're not going to be necessary. They are going to be burned as fuel for the fire. So there's a uh, lack of necessity for gear of war, meaning there's peace. And the reason that uh, this is happening is because a child is born to us. A son is given. That passage, that six and seven is probably one that you're pretty familiar with. If you've been around churches during Christmas season, those are kind of some pretty common ones that are Read now, most Israelites uh, hearing this would have recognized this as a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, or they would have thought of it as a messianic prophecy, specifically because of the mention of the throne of David there in verse seven. Okay, so they are seeing this as a prophecy that a Davidic king is going to be back in charge. Okay, and they were. I have to think that if you're um, a person in Israel hearing this uh, early on, they'd probably be like, I don't know what it means about that mighty God, everlasting father part, but the rest of it sounds pretty cool. That's probably pretty confusing for them. Uh, I don't think that it is reasonable to expect that really anyone expected that this Messiah would also be God. This, of course, we know that is true. And so we have a grid to run this through that we do understand it, though you have to think that it was probably pretty confusing when they first heard it, right? Uh, but of course, we know that this refers to Jesus, that this points to Jesus who breaks oppression through his work on the cross, puts an end, and then eventually we even look forward to him putting an end to all oppression in his second coming, okay? For us to see Jesus ruling on the throne of David over his kingdom and for oppression to be at an end, even though, of course, we have victory over sin through what Jesus has accomplished. There's still oppression in the world, right? There's still sin in the world. Uh, we don't see Jesus ruling on a, a, a literal throne of David, though he rules um, from heaven in a different way. Um, there's also something for us to uh, eagerly anticipate here to think about his second coming. But first and foremost, for things that we've seen, some things that these people would have been looking for, it's 
wow, okay, we've got we've got a prophecy that the Messiah is coming, and he sounds like he's going to be pretty awesome, and he is pretty awesome. And uh, also, the idea um, here is that it says there will be no end on the throne of David. That probably seems pretty cool. They're like, yeah, of course. Like, we'll get we'll get into why that's kind of significant here, and it's going to be even maybe a little more significant here in chapter eleven. Um, but just keep that in the back of your mind that there will be no end on the throne of David. Uh, so as we move down into further into Isaiah, we're going to go into chapter eleven and read a little more of these prophecies that we know are, of course, about Jesus as we are in this Advent series. Um, and Advent really just being a time that we look forward to, we remember what it was like as best we can to look forward to the coming of Jesus. That's really what the Advent season is about. So that's why we often read some of these passages um, and are reminded of these prophecies, reminding about just the wonder that it is that uh, Jesus was foretold so many hundreds of years before he came and the way he came, um, just how it shattered so many expectations and how he came in humility instead of power and all these kind of things. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to Isaiah 11. So in uh, chapter 11 of Isaiah, starting in verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Hold that. Hold that in your mind. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Okay, so we've got just a couple of chapters later, and we see some another kind of mention to this Davidic line. Here it's called the stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, being David's father, so sometimes that's how uh, the line is referred to. But here's why I told you to kind of hold on to those little pieces of information about the Davidic line and then the stump of Jesse. Um, so we're told that a, sh- a shoot from the stump of Jesse is going to come and it's going to bear fruit. But now let's go ahead and put ourselves back in the time of Isaiah. You would be maybe a little confused as to why he's referring to the Davidic line as a stump. Okay. Right. So at the time of Isaiah, this, this prophecy actually kind of has a little like near future prophecy embedded in it. At the time of Isaiah, we're still a few generations away from the Babylonian exile. So the Babylonian exile is going to happen to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. And that's where uh, David's descendants were ruling. Okay. And so not in the northern kingdom, which the, they were descended from Jeroboam, who even though his name sounds a lot like Solomon's son, Rehoboam, they were not brothers. Okay. So Rehoboam uh, in the divided king is the first of the divided kingdom kings. And he is the one who's in the line of David and the rulers of Judah are in the line of David. All that to say, <laughs> the people reading this or hearing this are like, what do you mean stump? We got a we got a guy right over there on the throne. That's no problem. So it's almost like a little bit of a like a little mini prophecy that there's also going to be something that happens to the line of David in this uh in the the time before uh this branch uh bears fruit so to speak. So there's that little that's kind of short-term prophecy. It's going to happen uh a, probably a little less than 100 years after Isaiah dies or around 100 years. Um 
so yes, that's a, a little bit maybe uncomfortable. But the second part and the more relevant part for our purposes uh, is that there will be a shoot. Um, if you've ever seen a stump that is not quite ready to give up on life, you will see that it sprouts little plants. And usually they are mostly worthless and annoying as you try to get the stump you know, out of there for good. But this is not just any shoot. This is one that is going to bear fruit. Okay, so this person that is being prophesied is in the line of David and will have the spirit of the Lord upon him, will be wise, understanding, mighty, knowledgeable, and will delight in God's will. The delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, okay, is what it says. And righteousness will be his guide. I, I, I think what I take from this in verse 3, when it says he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he'll judge the poor. It's kind of this almost more intrinsic value of this of this judge, of this ruler that's being spoken of. It's not a, uh, okay, let me intake information and output a decision. It's rather it's based on this like intrinsic righteousness and equity and not just righteousness for, you know, quote unquote righteousness for those who are wealthy and in power, but he with righteousness will judge the poor with equity, the meek of the earth. So this kind of intrinsic righteousness um, that will be what guides um, this ruler, this branch, so to speak, that's um, being used here. And of course, we know that this is describing Jesus, who had the Spirit of the Lord rest upon him, in fact, had the fullness of God, because Jesus was fully God, fully man. And also, we know that in Jesus' ministry on earth, he surrendered himself to the will of the Father. We see that again, especially in the book of John, is when we where we see a lot of that language. And in his prayers, we see that Jesus is, in his earthly ministry, submitted himself to the will of the Father. So this idea that he will delight in the fear of the Lord um, is a great representation of what Jesus' earthly ministry was like. So he is the ultimate offspring of David. And we also get a little picture a little later in this chapter of what his eternal rule will be like. This is pretty cool. Uh, verse 6 in chapter 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And again, this is another portion in which we see a prophecy that kind of still applies to us as a prophecy, right? Um, this is a part that we do not, <laughs> don't put, if you really love a lamb, don't put a wolf near it, right? If you care about your kid, don't put him over a cobra den, right? Those are things that, when we hear, we're like, yeah, that doesn't describe our world, right? And now there's some ways, of course, in which this is fulfilled in part in that there is peace between those who should not have peace, primarily between us and God. Because of our sin, there's no reason for there to be peace between us. Um, but because of Jesus' work, there is. And then we also think about um, between one another, how we can have peace uh, regardless of our our nationalities or our race, ethnicity, age, whatever it may be, um, because we are one in Christ Jesus. But we also can look forward to this time when the the peace that reigns in this uh, little passage here is a 
an eschatological, an end times kind of peace. That's not a peace that we experience here on earth. So again, a part of this prophecy, just like in the last one that we still have to look forward to, that we know ultimately is still all realized because of who Jesus is and because of God's wonderful plan. So that is Isaiah chapter 11. And then for our third Old Testament prophecy that we'll be talking about for this wonderful Advent Bible breakdown, I'll let you decide if it's wonderful, I guess. The Advent is wonderful. The prophecies are wonderful. You can decide if you think the Bible breakdown is wonderful. But we are going to, regardless, look at one more passage. This one is from the book of Micah, and it is in chapter 5, starting in verse 2. But you... O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So this prophecy, it starts with an address to the town of Bethlehem, right? A little nice little literary device here, and refers to a king of Israel who is going to be coming, but also is from ancient days is from of old. Okay. So it's like, a, okay, so the, this ruler is coming, but then they've already, but they're, they've already been kind of deal, which again, if you're re- reading it, then is nice and confusing for us. We're like, ha, we know exactly what they're talking about. We see you, Micah. So the prophecy, um, it, it then also refers to this time of waiting until what the, what it says, she who is in labor has given birth. I would think that this is uh, most likely referring to Mary, could also be kind of referring to Bethlehem, kind of more, um, again, more literarily, kind of poetically, um, or both. Both is fine, too. You can have both. Um, but either way, there's this period of of waiting, okay? So she'll give them up until the time, um, which we know that from the time of this prophecy to the time of Jesus' birth, there is this big waiting period. Um, we often... Um, call it the intertestamental period, the time between the two testaments. And um, it's kind of a time where there was no new prophecy in Israel a long time, about 400 years. So there's this waiting period that's prophesied here and that is realized not too long after. And then it says, then the brothers, or you could also think of that um, as the people, um, is kind of the um, meaning there, not uh, like literal brothers or uh, things like that, but like the people. Um, like we might refer to one another as brethren, uh, then the brothers of this ruler shall return to the people of Israel. So this kind of regathering in this ruler won't just be a ruler, but also be a shepherd that leads and protects his people, leading them to know God and leading them into peace. Okay, of course, we know that Jesus is going to be called the good shepherd, we are also the shepherds. Nah, just kidding. We're the sheep. We're the dumb ones, but we've got a good shepherd and he protects us. Um, the good shepherd um, says the sheep know his voice, that we follow him, that he gives the sheep, who is us again, eternal life. Um, there's also a parable of him leaving the 99 to find the one lost sheep. 
uh, Jesus uh, reveals himself often as a shepherd. And if you've listened to uh, the Bible breakdown before, you know that uh, the kind of the theme of being a shepherd is one that is common throughout all of scripture. Okay. That when people are shepherds in the scripture, something is kind of, it's enough to just kind of grab your attention. Uh, Moses was a shepherd. Uh, Abram was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Um, Saul was a shepherd and he was really bad at it, which kind of signaled how maybe he wasn't going to be a good king. Anyways, the imagery of shepherd is very important throughout all of scripture. So this idea that this ruler is also going to be a shepherd says something unique about this ruler. It's not just some other king. This ruler is also going to be a shepherd that attunes our ears to think, okay, there's something here. And of course, we know that's how Jesus would describe himself. And then there at the beginning of verse five here in Micah five, it says that he shall be their peace. Um, and I kind of had the thought and I was like, I wonder if the ESV also would cross reference and it sure did. So I felt even more confident about it. Um, this idea that Jesus is our peace. We get that from Ephesians too. Paul says it in chapter two, verse 14 says, for he himself talking about Jesus is our peace who has made us both one. Okay. And that, in that, what he's referring to is the Jews and the Gentiles being brought into one body through faith in Jesus into the church and having unity, even though they the world would have a bajillion reasons to separate Jews and Gentiles culturally, religiously, and all that kind of thing. Um, that through Jesus, that our unity in him is more important than the differences that divide us societally and culturally. And that's what a, a big portion of that big portion of Ephesians is about, about how Jesus is our peace. And so how we see how it's all, I'm, again, I'm not kind of like earlier, I'm not saying that, oh, specifically Paul is referencing Micah 5, 5. Perhaps he was, perhaps he was not. But again, we see the, the common thread. We see that Jesus is the peace that this ruler that's being prophesied says he shall be their peace, whether or not Paul had it in mind specifically or not, doesn't mean that it's not true in both cases, if that makes sense. So uh, as we finish up, just some application uh, for why why bother um, st studying some of these Old Testament prophecies, uh, because we already know they're true, right? And yeah, there was some stuff, more stuff for us, um, some things that we still have to look forward to, right? But uh, what's the point of studying these Old Testament prophecies about Jesus that we know are true. Well, the Old Testament prophecies remind us that Jesus was always the plan. The Old Testament prophecies remind us that redemption and grace didn't start in the book of Matthew. And sometimes that's kind of the view that uh, we have. We think like, okay, Old Testament, uh, mean and wrathful God, and New Testament, he's real nice and gracious. This has always been the plan. And we don't have time to obviously go into all the ways that we see that, but we see it most pertinently when uh, we realize, oh, so these prophecies that were about something high and mighty hard to understand, they were realized in Jesus. And this prophecy about Jesus was from hundreds of years before he lived. This wasn't a spur of the moment. God didn't uh, call an audible. This was God's plan. God's grace and goodness has been for all time. Hear it again. God's grace and goodness has been for all time. From the time of the first human sin, there has been grace for people. There has been ways that God has made a way for us to be forgiven. It's been for all time. 
We see it all throughout the Old Testament. He's preparing. He was giving uh, examples. He was making systems that pointed eventually to Jesus. We know now that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament writers are going to refer to it as a shadow, a shadow that the substance of which was Jesus. All the history of Israel, all the stories we read, all the patriarchs, all of the mistakes that people make in the time of the kings and the judges and all that kind of stuff. All of those stories of Israel were leading to this moment that there would be salvation through this king and Messiah. And we, as New Testament believers, we get to know and appreciate those stories. We get to learn from those stories. We get to see the kind of who, how Jesus was foreshadowed in those stories. But even more so than that, we, along with all of God's covenant people for all time, because of what Jesus has done, because we've gotten to see the fulfillment of these prophecies, especially we as who are uh, Gentiles, we as New Testament believers are invited into that story. Not only do we get to learn from and know that story, but because of what Jesus has done, because he has been our peace, because he has been this ruler, shepherd, this one who gave his life for ours, we get to be a part of his story. We get to be ones who share that story, and we will get to be the ones to enjoy that story with him and with one another for all time.